This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Tom Drury's story, Accident at the Sugar Beet, which was published in The New Yorker in 1992. I don't know if you've ever watched a spider making a web, said Dan, but I have, Bonnie, and it takes a long time, and there's a lot of going back and forth, and even when this web is done, somebody might come along and destroy it just by their hat hitting it. Know what I mean? The story was chosen by Antonia Nelson, who has been publishing her own stories in the magazine since 1991. Her most recent collection, Funny Once, came out last year. Hi, Tony. Hi, Deborah. Now, the last time that you were a guest on the podcast a few years ago, you read a story by Mavis Gallant, and this time you chose a piece by Tom Drury. Do the two stories have anything in common, aside from the fact that they appeal to your sensibility? Uh, Gosh, I hadn't thought about that. I suppose appealing to sensibility is about the first place one would start. Um, (laughs) Well, both stories involve women who are somehow waiting for something. In the Mavis Gallant story, it was money. And here it's something else. Yeah, the something else is a little elusive. But yeah, definitely the sense of waiting. At the time I read the Mavis Gallant story, I couldn't locate any of her books in print. I went through um, an out-of-print book service. And, you know, anybody I've mentioned Tom Drury to has said, God, I love that piece, but I haven't read anything. And so some Mm -hmm. of that maybe, the sense of just these people are such extraordinary writers and they need a much larger audience. Yeah. Now, what is it about uh, Tom Drury's writing that appeals to you? These people in this story remind me of my family um, (laughs) so much. It's so excellent to be in their company for me. There's, There's a lot of deadpan humor and warmth without sentimentality. And for me, it feels familiar and also just something I I want to hang on to and not and have out in the world besides just in my mother's kitchen or something. (laughs) Now the story accident at the sugar beet ended up as or maybe began as a chapter in Tom Drury's novel The End of Vandalism and I know you you mentioned you were just rereading or, or reading that novel. Can you say a bit about how it fits into the book? It's interesting I I did not know that the book had been a story of stories before it was a novel. And I have to say the effect in reading the chapter, it felt to me as if its shape w- was story-like and the imagery I took away from it. It was working on me as a story, even as it was also functioning wonderfully as a chapter. The images in it and the actions in it really, really stayed with me without seeming quite fully story-like, but still having having that effect. It's it's a relatively early chapter in the book, but it's a chapter at which I was completely captivated and I believe maybe read the rest of the book without stopping after that point. <laughs> the End of Vandalism is one of, I think, three Drury novels which were set in this sort of fictional rural middle American yeah. community. I think you can feel that the characters are so fully known and that there's a kind of authority in in revealing these seemingly odd moments of them that makes you feel as if the writer knows them really well and that he's got patience with letting them show a little bit of themselves here, knowing that he can come back to them later, either in the same novel or a different novel this year or perhaps 15 years from now. Mm-hmm. It's, um, yeah, there's a sense that he really lived with them for a long time. Yeah, I admire it very much. It seems like a great thing to be able to have at your disposal, just a large, lovely cast who can do anything in and out of decades of time. When did you first come across Tom Drury's work? I started reading this book maybe three months ago. Oh, for the first time? Yeah. And then I read everything real (laughs) fast. (laughs) So you're you're in Tom Drury head. Yeah, precisely. That's a good place to be. Yeah. So we'll talk a bit more after the reading. And now here's Antonia Nelson reading Accident at the Sugar Beet by Tom Drury. Accident at the Sugar Beet. Dan Norman's trailer was the second place broken into by Louise Darling. The first was the school in 1972. Louise and Cheryl Jewell had climbed a drain pipe, raised a window, and spray-painted 31 football helmets hanging on the wall of the gym. 
Louise and Cheryl were sophomores, and they felt, and they were not alone, that too much importance was being placed on football at a time when the rest of the school was without money. Meanwhile, there were those helmets, like dinosaur eggs, pegged up in a row, and the two girls took their spray paint and scrawled the following, one letter per helmet, See the Lonely Boys Out on the Weekend. The words came from a Neil Young album and were actually not about football, but about buying a pickup and driving down to L.A. All Louise and Cheryl had to do was make it boys, plural. Some football players protested in the school paper. With the many activities available to us, such as pep rallies, snake dances, etc., we are far from lonely, they wrote. No one ever found out who painted the helmets. The equipment managers were able to scrub the letters off using steel brushes dipped in turpentine, but there were those who felt the team played lightheaded all year due to the fumes. Louise was 16 at the time. Now she was 34, and the school was closed, and frost coated the windows of Louise's house. Also, the big white dog was in the living room. He sat on the couch, looking luminous and pleasantly surprised. Halloween was coming, and that seemed to be the extent of his message. Louise had a set of big green drinking glasses, and she was enjoying her third green glass of red wine. "'You're supposed to be outside in the cold shed,' said Louise to the dog, "'but instead you're in the warm house. "'What are you doing on the warm Davenport in the warm house? "'You're not going to answer me, are you? "'I think I could talk for a long time before I'd get an answer, couldn't I?' Mary, Louise's mother, called her on the telephone. Hans Cook had acquired a large amount of venison, and Mary wanted Louise to distribute it. Hans was Mary's companion. For a living, he drove trucks and anything else that people would pay to have driven. The dog's in the house, said Louise. He's sitting here watching TV. I don't think Les Larson would like that, said Mary. Isn't that dog supposed to guard the farm? This was the Clar farm. Louise rented the house, and Les Larson the fields and outbuildings. The farm is quiet as a mouse, said Louise. How did Hans come by this venison? Traded for it, said Mary. Some people came from Mankato, and Hans met them in the parking lot of the King's Waffle in Walleye Lake. He gave them two hens in a cage, and they gave him a side of venison. They must have been really special hens, said Louise. Well, apparently they were showbirds, said Mary. I would assume they came from his cousin Francis, but I could be mistaken. They talked a little more and said goodbye. Louise sipped wine and turned the television back up. Now watch, she said to the dog. See what this lady's doing? Look at the TV, at the TV. She's taking the real pearls and leaving the fake ones. Louise stood in front of her mother's deep freeze down in the basement beside the stairs. It was afternoon on Saturday. She had a little headache and wore an ugly, shabby sweater. She kept bumping a coat rack bearing the little coats once worn by herself and her sister June. Why me, said Louise, just curious. If I have you do it, said Mary, who was sitting on the basement steps drinking sherry, it shows the importance I attach to it. Also, it gives you the chance to make some lasting friends. Can I have some of that sherry, said Louise? It's all gone, sorry, said Mary. I have lots of friends, said Louise, who seem to be drawn by the presence of the little wool coats into the tone of voice of an eight-year-old. Take some to Dan Norman, said Mary. You like him. Dan Norman was the county sheriff. He and Louise had kissed once in a tuxedo shop. They had been brought together by the breakup of Louise's marriage, and now that it was good and broken up, they had not seen each other in a while. He's never home, said Louise. Mary, who was on the Grafton Town Council, nodded wisely. You think you hold office, when in fact the office holds you, she said. Louise loaded her arms with white packages. How many goddamn deer you got in here, she said. Mary stood. According to Hans, it was an eight-point buck, she said. Don't feel compelled to take it all at once. Get that little Coleman and put some in there with some ice. That's what I got it out for. And don't forget to smile. It takes less muscle effort to smile than it does to frown. When my face is completely relaxed, people still think I'm frowning, said Louise. You have a beautiful face, said Mary. Even you must admit my forehead is on the large side, said Louise. I've never believed that about your forehead, said Mary. Louise delivered venison to three people before giving in to her hangover, and even those people, Nan Jewell, Henry Hamilton, and Jack White, lived on her way home. Nan Jewell had the southernmost of the three sisters, 
the big peach-colored houses on Park Street where the remaining members of the Jewell family lived. Nan was a rich and restless widow with the rumored ability to bend in half like a nutcracker while working in her garden. When Louise arrived, the old lady was practicing the line of attack she would follow in church the next morning. They're not posting the hymns anymore, she said. They have always posted the hymns, always. This may seem unimportant, but is it for people with arthritis? Is it for those who, for whatever reason, require a head start to find the correct page? I'm talking about lonely people with crippled fingers who need Christian fellowship the most. Another thing, the communion bread. I don't know who slices the communion bread lately, but they've got a lot to learn about what is meant by a wafer. Sometimes you have to wonder what's become of this town. I don't think a jewel would cut communion bread that way. I don't think a Montrose would. I don't think a Robichaud, a Mason, a Kelson, a Carr would. This is true, said Louise, but she didn't know anyone named Kelson. It seemed that Henry Hamilton's farm slid more and more downhill every day. The theft of his tractor about a year ago had been a turning point. It took something out of him. Now milkweeds had skirted the barn, across the yard, and started up the driveway. Henry was an egg man, a hog producer, and a notary public. As Louise drove in, a pig emerged from behind a rusted gas tank, ran across the long grass, and slipped into the trees. It had big ears and black and white markings. Henry's house was dim and warm and smelled of boiled cabbage or boiled greens of some kind. But it wasn't as if he had just boiled the greens. It was as if they had been boiling for many years. On the kitchen table he had spread the funnies from the Sunday paper, and he was carving a jack-o'-lantern. The mossy seeds spilled over the funnies. So far he had rendered a narrow smile and diamond-shaped eyes. "'There's a pig out,' said Louise. "'He thinks he's my helper,' said Henry, turning the pumpkin toward Louise. "'How does he look? I was just working on this guy when I thought, "'Say, this looks like tiny.' "'Kind of,' said Louise. "'The mouth does a little.' I never see him around anymore, said Henry. Well, you know, we're divorced, said Louise. Henry put down his knife. I didn't know that, he said. Henry said, Louise, you remember, you notarized my statement. Okay, said Henry, that's right, so I did. He sawed at the pumpkin. I try to do one of these every year. Sometimes I get a fair amount of children. Other times the night goes by and I don't see anyone. One year I made popcorn balls, but now I'm told they turn down anything that isn't wrapped in the factory on the chance that it might be poisoned. You're losing the tiny look, said Louise. She was right. There was something about the nose. It was too jaunty and comical. Henry shrugged. An old Mormon's feed clock ticked on a desk. How do you like being divorced, he said. It's all right, said Louise. I don't have to cook anything I wouldn't want to eat. That's a plus. Louise found Jack White in his horse barn with the veterinarian Roman Baker. Jack had Belgian horses named Tony, Mac, Molly, Polly, and Pegasus. They were enormous horses with jaws like anvils, and now they stood around trying to blend in. Louise told Jack about the venison, and he said it would be a minute before he could worry about that. The problem was that some of his horses were walking backward. When did this start, said Roman Baker. His face was narrow, his hair thick, his eyes widely spaced. He'd been working with horses so long he had begun to resemble one. Changed their diet recently? Might there be something spooking them? Not that I know of, said Jack White, but there again I've been gone. He put his boot up on the rail and crossed his forearms on his knee, like someone in a fertilizer commercial. Just yesterday got back from Reno, spent five days in Tahoe and three days in Reno, that Tahoe is some of the prettiest country there is, and I saw Juliet Prowse in Reno. What a pair of legs on that woman. What a radiant lady. Anyway, my son Johnny was watching the place for me while I was gone, and when I asked him, he said as far as he had noticed, the horses were not walking backward. I said, you mean to stand there and tell me if a horse was walking backward you wouldn't notice it? He said he might not. Well, the boy has personal problems, and that's no secret. As I always tell him, Johnny, you miss the boat. I say, Johnny, see that little speck on the horizon? That right there is the boat, which you missed. I saw him up at Walleye Lake last spring, said Louise. We had a talk. Seemed real friendly. Jack White dusted off the sleeve of his shirt. He always liked you, he said, and it's too bad he didn't marry somebody of your caliber instead of that nut he did marry. 
although it's certainly hard to put more than a tiny fraction of blame on her. Roman Baker took a silver penlight and examined Tony's ears. You got anything unusual growing in the field, he said. Jack stood, adjusted his belt. Boy, I sure don't think so, he said. Have you checked the fence rows this fall? Did you check them at all in the summer, said Roman. Sure, said Jack. Well, no, not really. They took a pickup out in the bumpy pasture. Jack drove, following the fences. Roman Baker occupied the passenger seat, and Louise sat on the tailgate, weeds sweeping against her ankles. In the southwest corner, the fence was thick with dark green growth. The truck came to a stop. Roman got out, crushed some spade-shaped leaves, and brought his cupped hands to his face. This has to go, he shouted. He filled his arms with weeds and pulled them from the ground. All this, he said, everything from here on down. Louise went out with the girls that night. This had been planned for a while. Perry Kleeborg, the portrait photographer for whom Louise worked in Stone City, had suggested it. He had accused her of moping around to the point where it was slowing down her performance. He received a magazine called Business Bits, free in the mail, and evidently he'd been reading it. Oh, my performance, said Louise. You must excuse my performance. You ought to go out with the girls, said Kleeborg. Do something to relax your mind a little bit. Louise pressed wet contact sheets to the wall. I don't know any girls, she said. Now, I have 500 club every Thursday, said Kleeborg. I know it's helped me. Do you play 500? I can't play any games of Trump, said Louise. I like slapjack. Not really a club-type game, said Kleeborg. No, said Louise. Do you bowl, said Kleeborg? I have bowled, said Louise. Well, you ought to do something, said Kleeborg. Find something and do it. That's what I say. Not long after this, as it happened, the chairman of the county board of supervisors had his picture taken at the Kleeborg studio. His name was Russell Ford, and his skin was bad, but he seemed to think if he got the right pictures, people would overlook this. Removing scars and bumps from a photograph is not hard, but Russell was after something subtle, and Louise eventually had to take the photographs to Big Chief Printing in Morrisville to have them touched up. The airbrushers there were two women named Pansy Gansevoort and Diane Chevis. They roomed together in an A-frame on the south shore of Walleye Lake and were somewhere in the lost years between 27 and 32. The three women had some laughs over Russell's homely features and decided to get together one Saturday night. Louise found Pansy and Diane in the hi-hat lounge on Route 29 in Morrisville. It seemed they had already been drinking hard among the Halloween decorations. Pansy's face was a high red, and Diane had broken a glass. If alcohol was like a slow train through hills and scenic lowlands for Louise, for Pansy and Diane it seemed more like an elevator after the cable has snapped. Louise tried to impose some order. The table at which they sat was a video game pitting a giant bat against a humorous figure representing the player. Louise suggested they try this, and they did, but without success. The stream of quarters required was more or less continuous, and no sooner would they get the little person moving than the bat would sweep in, ending the game. Finally, Louise said, I don't even get the object. I guess stay away from the bat, said Diane. At this, Pansy drank off some vodka and began to talk. My boyfriend used to slap me, she said. He wouldn't need a reason. He would slap me for good things or bad things, in sickness and in health. He would slap me to improve his luck. Then he slapped me in front of my mother, and she pushed him down the stairs. Good, said Diane. So he stopped slapping me, said Pansy, and started burning me with a cigarette. I missed the slapping at first, until I got used to the cigarette. Then he stopped smoking. They outlawed smoking at work, and he said if he couldn't smoke at work, it would be easier all around if he didn't smoke at home either. He tried a pipe for a while but it wasn't like the cigarette. Finally, he moved out. I miss him. I miss him. I miss all the terrible shit he did. Diane rocked the weeping pansy. I know you do, babe, she said. I'm trying to picture this, said Louise. Pansy wiped her eyes. He's going through changes, she said. He is deeply troubled. Are we ready for a round? Louise laid $10 on the table and got up to use the bathroom. She washed her hands and looked at her reflection in the mirror. She felt as if she had strayed far from the people she understood. On the other hand, she lived within 12 miles of where she was born. Dan Norman was on the 10 o'clock news. 
Bonnie Brill had interviewed him for Channel 4 out of Morrisville. A baby had turned up several months ago at a grocery store in Margot, and they were trying to find the mother. Dan apparently could not say much, but then he usually couldn't. Would you say you're interviewing suspects, said Bonnie. We don't have any suspects, said Dan. If there's been a crime, we don't even know for sure what crime it is. So no, I guess I wouldn't say that. But you're interviewing, what, people, said Bonnie. Dan gave this consideration. He looked into the camera by mistake and looked away. Yes, he said. Oh, sure. Is there a connection between the shopping cart and the missing fabric, said Bonnie. Well, this is what we have to find out, said Dan. Forty yards of green corduroy had been stolen from Fashion Village in Margot on the day the baby was found. Could it be random coincidence, said Bonnie? I mean, why couldn't it be? I don't know if you've ever watched a spider making a web, said Dan, but I have, Bonnie, and it takes a long time, and there's a lot of going back and forth, and even when this web is done, somebody might come along and destroy it just by their hat hitting it. Know what I mean? Louise picked up the phone and dialed Dan's number. She did not expect him to be home, and the phone rang in that neutral way it does when no one is going to answer. But he did, and Louise asked him to come over and have a beer. "'I better not right now, Louise,' said Dan. "'I'm not sure, but apparently there's been an accident up at the Sugar Beet. I'm hearing things on the radio.' "'What kind of things?' said Louise. "'Things about an accident,' said Dan. "'Tell you what, though, why don't you come over here? I don't think I'm going to have to get involved, but I should stick by the radio a while.' By the way, I don't have any wine, and I don't have any vodka. I have those, said Louise. It should not have surprised Louise that Dan was gone by the time she got there. A manila envelope was stuck in the doorframe, and in the envelope was a note saying the key was under the rock. The path from the door to the driveway was lined with white-painted rocks, and Louise could not find any key. She checked under 17 rocks, and with the last one she broke a pane of glass above the doorknob. Louise let herself in and put on some lights. She swept up the broken glass and dumped it in a wastebasket. Looking for a corkscrew, she found on the counter a letter from Dan's Aunt Mona, who was scheduled for exploratory surgery on the 18th of November, but beyond that had little to say. Louise poured wine and carried a snack tray into the living room. One of those bankers who had stolen all the depositors' money was on TV. This one had bought a boat, a plane, and a Holstein ranch in Kenya with a partner named Winston. He was speaking to a room crammed full of students. These students were practically hanging from the rafters there at Harvard University. It was a seminar on the educational channel. I made mistakes, said the man, ruined lives. Yeah, I did. Whatever suited my interest. My loved ones hate me. I have no loved ones left, so I have come here tonight to help you. The students asked hostile questions, but seemed at the same time to be taking notes, so perhaps they could pull the same shit some day. And certain things about the banker reminded Louise of Tiny, such as the way he ran his hand over his face when asked a hard question, and the self-centeredness of him. I did this, I did that, always I. This was a tiny trait. She changed the channel and watched the salad master man, who was bashing frying pans together in merry abandon. Louise went out to the car and got her overnight case. She showered, washed her hair, brushed her teeth, and put on a cotton nightgown. She pulled the blankets off Dan's bed and went out to sleep on the Davenport. Later, when Dan came home, she sat up from a dream and said, just put her in a bucket. It's all right, said Dan. He was in the kitchen, washing his hands. Louise swept the hair from her eyes. I was dreaming, she said. What about, said Dan. I was at the circus, and they made me be a clown, said Louise. It was awful. What time is it? Dan looked at his watch without pausing in the washing of his hands. Louise felt like a scientist observing his habits. 2.30, he said. I had to break the window, said Louise. Yeah, I was so careful to write a note, I forgot to leave the key, said Dan. He shut off the faucet, dried his hands on a dish towel. Well, was there an accident, said Louise. Dan nodded and stepped into the living room. Some guy came up the embankment and hit a cooling tower. How is he, said Louise. Dan sat down in a low chair with a bottle of beer. The chair was close to the Davenport. Louise could have touched Dan's forearm with her foot, except her foot was under a blanket. Well, he's dead, he said. Louise nodded and listened. 
Grafton can be very quiet in the middle of the night. What's it doing outside, she said. Raining, said Dan. Hmm, said Louise. They were predicting rain. It is raining, said Dan. Say, this may sound odd. I mean, it does sound odd. But I've been thinking about your eyebrows. I don't know why, but they've really been on my mind a lot. Is that right, said Louise. So I was wondering what your reaction would be if I came over there and, you know, if I kissed your eyebrows, said Dan. If I'm out of line, just tell me. I think it would be good, said Louise. I think it would help. So he did, and this began a series of kisses. They had kissed before, but not to this degree. Dan tried to unbutton the nightgown slowly and hypnotically, but could not manage the buttons. So she unbuttoned and opened the white nightgown. She put her arm out, seeking a purchase on the Davenport, and knocked the beer bottle over. Bam! You're wrecking the place, said Dan. It's my way, said Louise. Later they watched the streetlight shining on the trailer window, and Louise asked Dan whether he had found the mother of the grocery store baby. We have some leads, he said. Louise had the bigger place, but for those first times they mostly ended up at Dan's trailer. Part of the reason was Louise's farm-style bed. It came with the house and had contained generations of clars, who seemed to have been small people with rubber spines and a liking for vertical bars, as in prison. It was a tasteful bed, and Louise felt thrilled at not having to sleep in it anymore. Dan had made his bed out of a mattress, three-quarter-inch plywood, and cement blocks. It provided a good, sturdy platform for ranging around and trying to figure out what the other person wanted. He surprised her with his sexual side, by having one, for example, and she felt like a crippled skier from the movies who learns everything over again and wins the big jump against the East Germans in a blur of sun on snow. There was a spell on the blue and white trailer, and when they had to leave, they only wanted to come back. Three, four, five nights. She cried once, urgently, and there was nothing that could be done to make her stop. He tried to console her. Don't cry. Don't cry, Louise. It's all right. Don't cry. But what could she say? It was just emotion that had to come out. Halloween fell on a Wednesday that year, and in the morning Louise sat up in Dan's bed, put on her socks, and looked out the little window just in time to see Hans Cook towing away her car. She pulled jeans on under her nightgown and ran outside calling, Hans, Hans. But the tow truck and the Vega chained to it were well down the road by then and moving at a fair clip. She could hear him shifting up on the blacktop. Louise turned in the grass. Her feet were freezing. Dan's car was on ramps, minus a fuel pump, beside the trailer, and the cruiser had some ungodly theft-foiling device that no one could get around except Dan. This went back to 1979, when one of the sheriff's cars was stolen from the lime bucket, driven to the sand pits, and rolled down the bank into 190 feet of water. Back inside, Dan slept in orange light, and Louise called her mother. I wish I could help, said Mary, but I don't know anything about it. Are you sure it was Hans? It doesn't sound like the Hans I know. Where's he going? That's what I don't understand, said Louise. Does he still work with Ronnie LaPointe at the station? Because if I remember right, sometimes that wrecker is at the station, sometimes it's at Hans's. Or am I wrong about that? Don't they more or less divide it? Maybe Ronnie LaPointe would know what's going on. Oh, no, Ronnie and Hans split up, said Mary. They split up, though. It's been a good two months anyway. See, Hans felt that Ronnie was giving work to Dell Hetzler that should have rightfully gone to Hans. So Hans told him, you know, if I hear another word about Dell Hetzler, I'm taking my truck. I'm taking my phone number, and I'm going to set up on my own. So Ronnie says, well, go ahead, you so-and-so. I never liked you anyway. Now, I had to laugh when I heard this because you didn't know Doc LaPointe, Ronnie's dad, but this is word for word what Doc LaPointe was like. Fine, Ma. How do I get to work, said Louise. Won't Dan give you a ride, said Mary. I don't want to ask him, said Louise. He was working late last night. Tonight is Halloween. That's right, said Mary. They've already got six or eight hog feeders rolled out on Main Street. I can see them from my window. One, two, three, four. They take them from the hardware store. You know, you wonder why they don't chain them up or something. Maybe we need an ordinance to make people chain up their hog feeders around Halloween time. You couldn't enforce it, but people don't realize that even unenforceable laws have their use. Could you take me to work, said Louise. Where are you, said Mary. Are you at your house? I'm at Dan's, said Louise. Oh, said Mary. Oh, okay. Well, do you want me to pick you up there, I guess? 
Why don't I just walk to your house, said Louise. Yeah, why don't you, said Mary. Louise showered and dried her hair. She put coffee on. A shower tended to fog Dan's bathroom mirror for the rest of the day, and Louise sat at the kitchen table in her underwear while putting on her makeup. There was a little round mirror on the table. She could only see part of her face at a time. The furnace came on, and Dan's coffee maker made a sound that was just like a human sigh. Louise dressed and went out. The sun was partly hidden by the grain elevator, but blinding anyway. She blinked. Thanks a lot, Hans, she said. Mary was drinking her orange juice and listening to the radio by the kitchen window when Louise arrived. Bev Leventhaler was on the radio, the county extension woman, explaining how to put away a pumpkin bed for the season. Well, I got some new guidelines from the folks at the college last week, and I want to pass them along to you, said Bev Leventhaler. They are unusual, and I'm not going to pretend they are not, but I'm told that these methods have produced some very high yields when tried in an experimental situation. First, go down to your local hardware store and tell them you want a dowel rod two inches thick by 18 inches long. Perhaps you may have a similar dowel rod at home. Look in your closet or garage or workshop. I know we have a lot of extra dowel rod at our house. Next, you'll need a 12 by 12 sheet of black polypropylene, a handful of common twist ties, and six gallons of solution of calcium and lime. This is sold commercially as Calgro or Zing, and you should be able to find it in your town. But if not, Big Bear in Morrisville does carry Zing in powder form. Just remember, if you do get the powder, you need enough powder to make six gallons, not six gallons of powder. Mary left Louise on a shaded street in Stone City in front of Kleeborg's portraits. Call Hans, said Mary. He has an answering service. The girl's name is Barb. I will, said Louise. Say, said Mary, I meant to ask you, how's that venison going? Well, it isn't, said Louise. Louise called Hans, but he did not get back to her until the middle of the afternoon. She was taking prints from the fixer, and she looked at the prints, a frowning girl and her horse, and cradled the phone with her shoulder. "'Well, I'm sorry, Louise,' said Hans. "'I don't really know what to tell you. "'About six o'clock this morning the phone rang, and it was Nan Jewell. "'Actually, it would have been earlier than that, "'because Se habla Espanol was on, so I said, "'Buenos dias,' and Nan said, "'Hi, Hans. "'Louise Darling's car is broken down by the side of the road, "'and I want you to come get it and take it up to McLaughlin Chevy.' Now, in retrospect, it did sound kind of funny. I mean, it was your car. Why weren't you doing the calling? So I said to Nan, I said, well, who told you it wouldn't start? And she said that you told her it wouldn't start, but that you didn't have the money to fix it. So she was going to have it towed and repaired, and this would be as a favor to you. So at that point, I wasn't going to argue with her, but I'm sure sorry. I don't know what Nan Jewell was thinking of. I tell you what, though, I'm going to bill her for that tow. Well, okay, but I'm not paying for it, said Louise. Well, I don't think you should, said Hans. You didn't call me, she called me. That's right, said Louise. I know it is, said Hans. Louise called the Chevy place. The mechanics had worked up a long list of repairs, but she was able to cancel them all. Dan waited for Louise at the Strongheart at 4.30 that afternoon. This was a diner on Harlan Street in Stone City within walking distance of Kleeborg's. The restaurant was small and not clean, but featured excellent tenderloin sandwiches. Hello, Daniel, said Louise. They ordered food from an old man named Carl Peetz. He smiled constantly as if there were something wrong with him. Now I had a key made for you, said Dan. He emptied his pockets on the table. There were a red comb, an Allen wrench, a ball of string, a tape measure, a dog biscuit, fingernail clippers, and a skeleton key. Don't tell me I lost it already, he said. How did you get to be sheriff, said Louise. I don't remember, said Dan. "'Man, I'm about hungry enough to eat this biscuit,' said Louise. "'Don't,' said Dan. "'It's a knockout biscuit.' He got up and went to look in the cruiser. Smoke rose from the grill. Carl Peetz removed his apron, fanned the smoke, and seemed delighted to be doing just that. "'Is that ours?' said Louise. She went home that night to the farm. She stopped at Hy-Vee first to get groceries and some candy for the trick-or-treaters that might or might not come. Most of them impersonated that guy with the old hat and sharp fingers, but two were dinosaurs, one a ballerina, one a hobo with a sawdust beard. You didn't get many kids out in the country, and Louise stood in the doorway shoveling red hots into plastic pumpkins with black straps. The parents stayed back by pickups and station wagons, out of the light. 
The white dog knocked down a little girl dressed as Paula Abdul and, taking advantage of the confusion, sprinted into the house. By nine o'clock or so, no one else seemed to be coming, and Louise poured some Canadian club and turned on a movie featuring the wolfman and his wife. The wife was a prosecutor in Michigan, and she was investigating a string of murders for which her husband was responsible. But the wife didn't even know the guy was a wolfman. He himself took his time facing the truth, and there were long, uninteresting scenes with him in the research library in Ann Arbor. Then he tried to figure out some way to tell his wife, because she wanted to have children, and he had to keep putting her off while his wolf side was all for killing her and getting it over with. The prosecutor was crashing through the trees along Lake Huron, her husband at her heels, when a commercial came on. Louise stood and stretched. The movie was getting stupid, and she could sense thousands of people across the Midwest rising to rid themselves of it. She turned down the sound, heard a noise, and went to the window. She cupped her hands around her eyes. There seemed to be four or five people coming up the driveway. At first she thought they were trick-or-treaters, because she could see the bobbing yellow features of a jack-o'-lantern. But the people looked fairly tall, really, and no one turned toward her door. Up the driveway they went, five shadows, into the farmyard. It was something to see. They had come to drag out a hay rack, or push over a shed, or let something loose from where it was supposed to be. A car would be up the road, waiting. Louise snapped her fingers, and the white dog trotted from the kitchen with a red plastic flower in his mouth. Give Louise the flower, said Louise, and she took it from him. Then she opened the door and pushed the dog onto the steps. Make us proud, she said. That was Antonia Nelson reading Accident at the Sugar Beet by Tom Drury. The story was published in The New Yorker in 1992 and became part of the novel The End of Vandalism, which is published in paperback by Grove Press. In the UK, Old Street Publishing will be bringing out a new edition this month with an introduction by John McGregor. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. Tony, I want to start with the title, Accident at the Sugar Beet, Uh which comes from a sort of seemingly throwaway moment in the story. You know, Louise calls Dan and wants to come over and he's worried he's going to have to go and look into this accident at the, I assume, a sugar beet refinery. So he goes and it turns out that the accident killed a man, but it's not mentioned again in the story. Why do you think Drury gave it this important role? I thought about that because I think titles are really helpful, especially in a story where it's a little elusive, this story, what it what it wants you to attend to. It spends a lot of time just letting you be exposed to characters saying funny things rather than kind mm-hmm. of getting on with whatever it wants to be about. But the reason that Louise calls Dan is because he said something 
that strikes her. At least that's my opinion. He says something about a web being created. And there's something appealing, it seems, in that statement. She sees him on television, I believe, saying Mm -hmm. that. And then she phones him and he says he can't come over, but she could come in over there. And it's because of this accident. But in, in effect, this is their first date, which is predicated by by some attraction that's not that's mysterious or it's not pointed at for the reader particularly and then is interrupted by his having to be gone and so on but this is the beginning of their relationship really and I think that's why it's titled that to focus a little bit on the intersection of death and desire and the meeting of sensibility That'd be my guess. Yeah. (laughs) There's a way in which a lot of what happens in the story seems sort of accidental, but then not really accidental. Mm -hmm. I mean, I got the sense reading it that Louise's mother has, in fact, planned this whole thing out and basically gives her the venison purely so that she'll call Dan and offer it to him because the mother knows that she likes him. Mm Mm-hmm. So there's a way in which everything is sort of controlled and preordained. Right. And everyone's up in everyone else's business and has been for generations. And the, the intersection of vandalism, whether small or large acts, and there are opposite ends of each side of this law enforcement and law breaking and miscommunication and clear communication. And it's really this this feel of a community that is all over the place in terms of its taking care of one another and knowing one another and insisting on things to one another with maybe the notion of the greater good somewhere lurking around in there. I'm sort of struck by the fact that Louise goes over there with her overnight bag. I know, isn't that great? <laughs> she brings her nightgown with her. And so there there's a sense that she knows what's going to happen. Right. But there is a way in which it all feels... It's not accidental, but it's sort of incidental. Yes, and her coming back to her house and stopping at these other homes and then the sort of patient way the reader is treated to all of their own little stories, which what direct purpose do they serve? No direct purpose to the story. They're just sort of parentheticals, asides, incidentals, digressions, which feels so much the way real life feels and that these are given more space on the page than the death of the man in the accident right, right, who doesn't um, get a name or even the baby who's who's found in the grocery all of those things which are the big news items are treated much less important and then these meetings of people who've known each other and going out and looking at the horses or the the weed that's been responsible for the horses walking backwards. Those are given that that sort of leisurely space. Right, right. Well, we get such a rush of secondary characters, most of whom come in and out of the story just once. You know, we even get the names of all the horses, though not of the dead man or the baby. Right. (laughs) Um, Why do you think Drury would introduce us to so many people who play such minor roles? Well, I can tell you why in the, well, I don't even know if I could tell you why in the novel, frankly, <laughs> but it is about a community and the point of view is shared in the overall novel. It's a love story. It's a love story. And the familiarity of love stories, the challenge is to make that somehow different or new or fresh or to visit it in a way that, that reveals something new about love and about becoming involved with somebody. And I guess in this instance, it feels as if They're both of a certain age and a certain sort of resignation. And the town, I mean, I think you're right. The town is sort of conspiring to put them together because it's it's right or it's known that it's right in some fashion. And I guess the community is involved in a way, a very charming way to my mind. Right. And in the novel, there's another element to the context for it, which is that Louise's ex-husband, Tiny, was actually arrested by Dan. Right, right. He's a a thief and a a vandal, and somehow he's sort of involved in this budding relationship in the background. Yes, and, you know, Tiny reappears in in the third novel in a sort of great capacity, too. And I like the notion in this of all these community members, everybody occupying a a different state of existence in some ways along mm-hmm. that 
that line of life, the older woman who's concerned about the hymnals, and the, the baby who's been found at the grocery, and then the woman who's perhaps, I don't know what her motive is for, for announcing that Louise's car needs to be towed, but right. she's... Right, well, that's, that's the one sort of secondary character who does reappear in a way. So the first time we see her, she, Nanjul, she's complaining that they're not telling you what hymns you're going to sing at church. And the next time we hear of her, she's having Louise's car towed mysteriously. <laughs> Is that just because she doesn't actually approve of this relationship? It's hard to say, but is she not related to that friend who broke into the to the high school gym all those years ago? Right, they have the same last name, though we don't we're not told if they're related. It doesn't seem out of keeping, knowing both small towns and agedness, and um, I couldn't say why what her uh, what her motivation is. You brought up Louise seeing Dan being interviewed and talking about that web. It seems that spider going back and forth and spinning its web and and everything being sort of at risk, and it feels very like the movement of this story. You know, Louise is driving around back and forth, going here and there, and people are people are moving around. And the whole time there's like maybe a fear that it's going to collapse somehow or that something's going to come in and knock it down, some kind of accident, you know. Right. I think what I really like about that passage is that Dan's expressing, and he hardly ever expresses anything, is pretty complicated, and it's almost a cliche, this notion of a web, but it feels precisely like what he would say, and it's slightly clumsy. It just feels so authentically of character and also something that you might be attracted to in somebody. Her gesture then of phoning immediately upon seeing it and then his response of, yeah, you can come over here, but I, I might have to be gone. It seems to me in, in a way a very elegant yet utterly realistic sort of beginning of a relationship that is fragile and or it has potential, but it's not a done deal. Mm-hmm. And they're old enough to have been through things and skeptical. And I think probably that's why she brings her overnight case because... <laughs> Because they're grown-ups. Yeah. It's interesting to me how the story is sort of punctuated by these things that Louise sees on TV. You know, she that first scene when she's watching with the dog, she sees a lady replacing real pearls with fake pearls. Mm-hmm. And then she sees Dan, who's kind of dodging questions and avoiding looking at the camera. And then she sees this embezzling banker. <laughs> <laughs> and the last thing she sees is a wolf man who's, you know, maybe about to kill his wife. So she gets a not very positive outlook on the world on <laughs> television. And I wonder if, if Drury's trying to tell us something with these clips of evasive people. I hadn't thought about that. I'm attracted to the way that wildness and impulse and animals mm-hmm. and then the opposite of humans and the suppression of impulse and the sort of civic behavior breaking laws or upholding laws. It seems like there's forces afoot in this story that are about wildness and then also about containment or civilization. And that if I was going to describe what the conflict is, a sort of overriding conflict, it feels as if it's between those two things, the the urges that run the head, sort of civic impulse, the rules and, Mm -hmm. and the urges that are elsewhere dictated, whether it's because you're turning into a wolf or, you know, leaving your baby at the grocery or whatever wild thing, if you're a horse eating the thing that makes you walk backwards, whatever wildness, that seems to me what's at play here. And the last thing in the story is the image of the dog who's not supposed to be inside sitting on the couch watching TV, but outside protecting the property, because that's the role for the dog who operates in between the wildness of the world and the docile domesticity of inside the house. And this dog wants to be inside watching TV. (laughs) But what do you think about the ending? Why do you think we end on this image of these sort of marauding people with bad intentions creeping onto the farm and the dog being sent out to deal with them? Vandalism is that that place between obeying the rules and doing something that's truly heinous. I mean, 
tagging is a pain in the neck, but it's not murder. Mm -hmm. But that impulse seems to me to be somewhere between those extremes of obeying the rules and then feloniously breaking them or horrifically breaking them. So I suppose that culminating instance of these marauders who are not the children who are okay in their monster costumes, but full-on adult or teenagers anyway, maybe that person who is also between the innocence of childhood and the experience of adulthood, they're also in that sort of middle place. And the dog, who is also a a kind of middle-placed sense of conflict or something in the story sent out to deal with them. It makes sense to me, but I'm not sure. And I'm, I can't quite articulate it, but yeah, it makes yeah. sense to me. I can feel it. It's it sensibleness. Feels like the ending. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny that the animals in this story are doing the wrong thing, that the horses are walking <laughs> backwards and the dog is inside watching TV. And <laughs> the pig thinks he's the helper to the man carving the jack-o'-lantern. Yeah. I talked to Tom about this piece and what he thought about it, what was salient about it. And he said that he, what really stuck with him looking at it again was the, the Neil Young lyric that's at the beginning, you know, see the lonely boys out on the weekend, and how that sort of describes Louise's life now, how she's, she has all of this surface activity, but she feels sort of essentially alone. Uh-huh. And she begins and ends the story watching TV with the dog. And that seems sort of a sad view of it, because one hopes that Louise is maybe going to find happiness with Dan, and that this is the beginning of something. But Yeah, um, well, I wouldn't want to ruin this novel or all three of them yeah, or anything, yeah. but well worth following. These characters yeah. are utterly charming and, and delightful. Yeah. There's something about Drury's writing style. I agree. It reminds me in some ways of uh, early Elmore Leonard. There's a kind of understanding between the male and female characters who are going to end up together. There's some sort of elliptical, quick way they make contact with each other. Mm-hmm. And also the way dialogue is is so effortlessly and hilariously captured, people's voices and the way they talk and tell stories and illustrate themselves. It's just so much fun to read yeah. in a way. Yeah. It, um, it's so funny and yet at the same time sort of emotionally uninflected. Yes. So you have to supply the emotion yourself as a reader. Yes. And it's not hard for me to do. Um, as I said, this feels in some ways very close to my own, um, my siblings, my family, my extended family, the way these characters encounter the world and then come back to tell stories about them, where the highlights are the funny parts or what characters they've encountered who've said or done kind of goofy things. Meanwhile, there may be a dead body some somewhere nearby, <laughs> but that isn't going to be as entertaining as, as these other details. Not, not as interesting as the jack-o'-lantern or the horses. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is really funny, actually, how the one dead person is completely unimportant. I know. These, these events in another writer's hands, it would be an entirely other story, which would be kind of a great experiment. Well, thank you so much, Tony. Completely my pleasure. Antonia Nelson is the author of 11 books of fiction, including, most recently, the story collection Funny Once and the novel Bound. You can download more than 90 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. Subscribers to the magazine can access the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. Online and in the digital edition, you can hear the short stories in the magazine read by their authors. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff and Alex Barron of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.